Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at a passage in particular in that chapter. We want everybody to be able to see the passage we're referring to in God's Word. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those two you marked at Matthew 5, so you don't need to fumble around to find it. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word as well. We mentioned that our missionaries to Kenya, the Huffstetlers, are here. They also have a table display set up on my right, your left, over here. So during our refreshment time after this service, uh, please go over and see the items they have there. Pick up one of their prayer cards as well. And, of course, greet them uh, during between services and then after as you're able. Few things frustrate the relationship between leaders and those that they lead, like failing to respect the difference between power and authority. What's the difference between those? Power has to do with ability to enforce conformity. And authority has to do with the right to enforce conformity. So as an illustration of the difference, a robber with a gun has the ability to force you to do what he says. But he does not have the authorization. He does not have the right to do that. A dictator can take power through a military coup, and so he has the ability, the power to enforce his will, but he's not authorized to do so. That's power without authority, and those who are under that unauthorized power chafe when it's exercised. On the other hand, it's possible to have authority without power. A police officer has the right to demand compliance with the law. But if his hands are tied due to excessive restrictions that are placed on him, he may not have the power to enforce what he commands. One of the blessings of our system of government is that our Constitution recognizes the danger of both unauthorized power and powerless authorities. Did you know that Jesus has both power and authority? As God, he has the power to carry out his mission. As God, the incarnate son, he's authorized by God the Father to exercise that power. At the end of the book that we are considering in Matthew, that contains the most famous sermon ever delivered that we call the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of this book, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we now come to a place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus begins to emphasize his power and his authority. At the beginning of this sermon, he spoke of the character of his followers, that is, of Christians, in what we call the Beatitudes. Blessings on those who are, as he says in verse 3, poor in spirit. And in verse 4, who mourn over their sin. In verse 5, who are humbled in their relationship to God and others. And because they are those things, verse 6 says they are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A righteousness that's demonstrated by what we saw in verses 7 through 9, in their mercy and their purity and their peacemaking. And that most often results in those Christians being hated and persecuted. But sometimes, as we saw last week, in the Christian's influence of salt and light, it brings a worldling to do what the end of verse 16 says, to glorify our Father 
in heaven. This righteousness that comes from being poor in spirit and sorrowful for sin and humble in heart, this righteousness is a conformity to a standard. And as we've seen, that standard is the character of God himself. He is merciful and he is pure and he is peacemaking. And so his people voluntarily hunger and thirst for those things. But Jesus has the authority to demand conformity to his standard. And he has the power to reward or to punish depending on one's compliance with his requirements. And so take a look at verse 19. Jesus says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now please notice the phrase in verse 20, I tell you. This reference to Jesus' own power and authority is new in this sermon so far. He used it for the first time just two verses prior in verse 18. But before that, he spoke in the third person in the Beatitudes. Bless are those who. And then he got more personal as he spoke in the second person in verses 10 through 16. Blessed are you. And you are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. But now he changes to focus on his authoritative position when he says, I tell you. And over the next several weeks, we're going to read of God the Son saying over and over, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Dear friends, we are privileged in this sacred time to sit at the feet of God the Son, who has power and authority to instruct us. Let's ask God to help us, to help us to listen and to conform to what he desires and deserves and demands. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for this sacred time. We open the pages of your word. We're able to read the powerful words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed has all power as God and has been given all authority by God the Father. Help us to hear. Help us to have open hearts and help us to be transformed by what you tell us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As each week, we have inserted for you in your program an outline. If you've not pulled that out as yet, I encourage you to do that now. And follow along as we look at this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing Jesus tells us, beginning in verse 17, is this, that he revered God's word. Jesus revered God's word. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now this phrase, law and prophets, was sometimes used in Scripture as shorthand to refer to the entire Bible that existed at that time. We now have two major portions of our Bible, the Old Testament and what we're looking at now, the New Testament. But the New Testament began with the coming of God the Son. And so when he came and walked the earth and spoke the words that we are looking at today, there was the first portion, what we call the Old Testament. 
And often in Scripture, this phrase, law and prophets, is used as shorthand to refer to the Bible that existed at that time, the Old Testament. Now, the full reference to the entirety of the Old Testament actually involved three sections. It was sometimes called the law, the prophets, and the psalms, or the writings, those, those three sections. I have a Hebrew Bible on my shelf, the Old Testament in Hebrew. And on the front cover, there are three Hebrew words, and it is, in English, those three words, law, prophets, and, and writings. And Jesus used it this way, the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the psalms. At the end of Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms. But earlier in that same dialogue that Jesus was having with two travelers along the road, where he says here, everything written about me must be fulfilled in the law, the prophets, and the psalms, or the the writings, earlier in that dialogue, he said this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so the law and the prophets, sometimes shorthand for the entire Old Testament. We see this again in Romans chapter 3, where the Bible says, "Now, Now the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. That is, to which the entire Old Testament points, gives witness, testifies. So when Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's saying, do not think that I have come to abolish what the Bible teaches. Rather, instead, I have come to fulfill it. All of it. Every section of it. But Jesus' reverence, evident reverence, throughout his earthly ministry, where he would often say, it is written, and refer to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. That reverence that he had for God's word may have been called into question by some because early in Jesus' ministry, he applied the Bible in surprising ways. For example, most of you are familiar with the fourth of the Ten Commandments, and that is the commandment concerning observance of the the Sabbath, the Sabbath day. There were all sorts of rules that had developed in Jesus' day by the religious leaders who were called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, These rules were about what it meant to reverence the Sabbath, the day of worship, the seventh day, that is, Saturday. One commentator said, The Pharisees sought to codify righteousness, prescribing proper behavior in minute detail for every foreseeable situation. For example, they specified proper Sabbath rest by placing precise limits on work. They codified how far one might walk, 1,000 yards, how much one might write, on the Sabbath, one word, and how much food one could take out of storage, one gulp. That was all you could do without, in their minds, breaking the Sabbath. Now, with that kind of environment from the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, imagine their surprise when they saw Jesus doing what Mark tells us in Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And then that passage in Mark 2 goes on to tell us that Jesus explained to them that they had misinterpreted the prohibitions regarding the Sabbath in the Old Testament, and he cited an example from the life of David. 
And shortly after that incident, there's another account of Jesus' approach to the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3. It says, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, why did they care about him healing on the Sabbath? Because healing was, in their minds, a form of work and therefore prohibited, and therefore you can't heal on the Sabbath. You read that account in Mark 3, Jesus went ahead and healed anyway. So Jesus does these things. And then he says, I tell you, I say to you, and some are no doubt wondering, is he setting aside the word as if it's unimportant? And that's why Jesus says at the beginning of verse 17, do not think, as some of you are thinking, do not think that I have come to abolish God's word. To the contrary, I have come to fulfill it. Now, how did Jesus then fulfill it? Jesus revered God's word. And rather than abolishing it, far from it, he came to fulfill it. And I have three ways in your outline that he did that. The first is he revered its teaching. Jesus revered its teaching. The Jewish word for law is Torah, and it means revealed instruction. It provides instruction about God and man and salvation. All the great doctrines of, the, of Scripture are found in the Old Testament and then expanded in the New Testament. And yet, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, it's only a partial revelation. Jesus fulfilled it all in the sense of bringing it to completion by his person, by his teaching, and by his work. And that's why in a book in your New Testament, talking about the relationship between the person and work of Jesus to what came before him coming to earth in the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews, it begins this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill all that has been written before. Everything that I say, he's saying in effect, is consistent with it. So he revered God's word. He revered its teaching. I say secondly in your outline, he revered its promises, its promises. Much of the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of the Anointed One, called the Messiah, the Mashiach, in the New Testament called the Christ. And the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, predicted many things about him. Among them is the place that he would actually be born. So in Micah chapter 5, it says, You, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You have all of these promises, all of these predictions about the life and the career of this anointed one who would come that we now know to be Jesus. And the first words that we have recorded that Jesus uttered when he began his public ministry are in Mark chapter 1, and he says this, The time has come. The time has come for what? The time has come for the fulfillment of all these promises that were given centuries before in what we call the Old Testament. In this book that we're considering, that contains the Sermon on the Mount, the book of Matthew, many times you find the formula, formula all this took place to fulfill 
what the Lord had said through the prophet. In chapter 11 of Matthew, it says something very interesting in this connection. It says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John the Baptist. So all of that prophesying and all that they are predicting and promising is all happening up until the time of John, and now the one about whom and to whom they pointed has come. And now God speaks through his Son. Both the prophets and the law pointed forward to Jesus, and both the prophets and the law were fulfilled in him. The word of God in the Old Testament predicted things about him, but it also pictured things about him. The sacrifices of animals, if you read through that first part of your Bible, just a cursory reading, you will find, especially in the beginning portion, commands about all sorts of sacrifices involving, involving animals many times. And these were commanded and carried out in the Old Testament and were a picture and a promise of an ultimate sacrifice that would come through Jesus on the cross. That's why when John the Baptist introduced Jesus to a watching crowd, he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John the Baptist was saying is this is the one who is the Lamb to which all of those lambs, all of those sheep, all of those animals in the Old Testament pointed. The Bible says these, these things that happened in the Old Testament are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Jesus revered the teaching of the Word of God and everything he said was consistent with it. And he revered the promises of the Word of God and everything about him was a fulfillment of it. And then I say thirdly, he revered the standards of the Word of God. He revered its standards. Now when I speak of standards of the Word of God, I'm speaking of its requirements, its laws, its commands, and its permissions, and its, and its prohibitions. And Jesus' reverence for these standards, these commands and these, these prohibitions, he showed that reverence in a couple of ways I have in your outline. The first is this. He would not lower them. Jesus refused to lower the standards given in the laws of God by the commands and prohibitions of the Old Testament. I mentioned earlier that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who tried to codify righteousness developed rules to help one carry out the commands of, of God. In developing these rules, they were making God's requirements, they thought, more manageable. The rules would help one, they thought, get his arms around the requirements that God had given. Now, in order to understand what they were doing, you need to remember there were two types of laws. There were commands, things you were to do and things you were not to do. But then there was a second uh, type of law, and that was permissions. The commands were things you were required to do or supposed to refrain from. The permissions were things that God allowed but did not command. Now, in the coming weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning next week in verse 21, we're going to see six times where Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And in those six 
passages that we're going to look at in six separate weeks. You have four commands and two permissions. Verses 21 to 26, you have a command regarding murder. Verses 27 to 30, a command regarding adultery. But then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus refers to a permission that God gave in the first part of your Bible regarding divorce. Verses 33 through 37, a command regarding oath-taking. And then the fifth of these six is the second of these two permissions. Verses 38 to 42 regarding the carrying out of retribution against one who has wronged you. And then the sixth and final one regarding relationships. Verses 43 to 47 is again the command. Permissions, two of them that we're going to see in the coming weeks regarding divorce and regarding retribution. They were not commanded, but they were allowed. As we will see in a few weeks, divorce was never commanded, but it was permitted in certain circumstances and under certain conditions. Retribution was permitted in the courts, but it was restricted, as we will see, to an exact equivalent of the offense. The permissions were limited. Now, it's, friends, very important to see this. What the Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing was restricting the commandments and extending the permissions. There were commandments about things you do and don't do. There were permissions that you were given, and what they would do was restrict the commands so that they narrowly applied, but they would extend the permissions so that they could, in effect, do what they wanted with them. In the words of John Stott, they made the law's demands less demanding and the law's permissions more permissive. What Jesus did was reverse both tendencies. The scribes and Pharisees were evidently restricting the biblical prohibitions of murder and adultery to the act alone. Jesus extended them to include angry thoughts, insulting words, and lustful looks. They restricted the command about swearing to certain oaths only, those involving the divine name, and the command about neighbor love to certain people only, those of the same race and religion. Jesus said all promises must be kept and all people must be loved without limitations. But the scribes and Pharisees were not content merely to restrict the commands to suit their convenience. They sought to serve their convenience still further by extending its permissions. They attempted to widen the permission of divorce beyond the single ground of what the Old Testament had called some indecency to include a husband's every whim. And they sought to widen the permission of retribution beyond the law courts to include personal revenge. Jesus reaffirmed the original restrictions. He called divorce on other grounds than what the permissions of the Old Testament gave adultery. And he insisted in personal relationships on the renunciation of all revenge. What we're going to see over the next several weeks is that Jesus extended the commands that they were restricting and he restricted the permissions that they were extending. Jesus revered the standards of the Word of God. He would not lower them. And I say in your outline as well, he perfectly obeyed them. He perfectly obeyed them. In Jesus' life on earth, he succeeded where everyone prior to him had failed. He obeyed the law, and he did so perfectly. 
The Bible says in Romans 3, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Why will no one be declared righteous by the works of the law? Because no one kept it until the time of Jesus. Galatians chapter 4 says this, when the time set, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, and then it makes, is careful to make this point, that he was born under the law so that he could redeem those under law. He was born under law, and he perfectly kept the law, and as a result, he's able to redeem all of us who were unable to keep the law. And so the Bible says, in summary of his ministry, in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus revered the teaching of the Word of God, and everything that he said was consistent with it. He revered the promises of the Word of God, and everything about him was a fulfillment of it. And he revered the standards of the Word of God, and everything that he did was in obedience to it. And to underscore that Jesus had absolutely no intention of in any way ignoring the Word of God, including the law sections, this is what he says in verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And when he says from the law in the context, again, shorthand for the law and the prophets and the writings, none of it will disappear. That has been proclaimed by God until everything is accomplished. Now, when the NIV that I just read and that most of you have with you and that we distributed at the beginning of the message, when it says, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen, if you have a, a King James version of that, it says, not a jot or a tittle. And that's referring to uh, a letter and then a marking in, in Hebrew. The smallest letter in Hebrew is called a yod, anglicized to a, a jot. And it just looks like a comma. And then there is this marking to, in order to distinguish letters in, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew alphabet. That's called a, a tittle. And what it is is this. It makes the difference between two letters. The, the R sound, a resh, just is like this. Just across and down. But then there is another Hebrew letter called a, a dalet, the D sound. And it looks very much like a resh, except instead of going to a corner and coming straight down, it goes to a corner, comes straight down, but then at that corner, there's just a little tiny extension. And that little extension is called a tittle. And that's why the NIV says not the smallest letter, not a yod, not the least stroke of a pen, not, not a tittle will pass away until all has been fulfilled. In the next two verses, verses 19 and 20, Jesus moves from talking about the law and the prophets of the past to talking about His law and Him as the prophet that will determine entrance in the kingdom in the future. Verse 19, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now the expression here, these commands, does not refer 
to the commands of the Old Testament. When Jesus says the near demonstrative, these, when he says these commands, Don Carson, New Testament scholar, says rightly, they refer not to the commands of the Old Testament law, but rather to the commands of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom now mentioned three times in verses 19 and 20. These are the commands that Jesus has already given in this sermon. And those that he's now going to give, beginning as we'll see next week in verse 21. The idea is this, friends. Jesus came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Fulfill it in the sense that he's the object toward which it all pointed. And therefore, he is saying, it is the height of foolishness not to listen to my commands, the commands of the kingdom. And so following now this passage, beginning in verse 21, there are six occasions where Jesus says, you heard it said, or some variation, and then follows it with, but I say to you. And at the end of the sermon, the the last three verses of the sermon in chapter 7, take a look, just turn the page. And look at the end of chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, as he ends the sermon, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Do you all see... (laughs) Who is the one with whom we all have to deal? Jesus is saying, it's me. I have all authority and I have all power. And in the very last passage of this entire book of Matthew, Jesus gives his final instructions to his first followers, famously what we call the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now notice, and teaching them to obey everything that who commanded you? That I commanded you. Jesus revered God's word. And I say in your outline, therefore, we must revere Jesus' word. Jesus revered God's word. We must revere Jesus' word. Verse 19, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And when he starts that out with, With therefore, he's saying, because I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of its teaching and its promises and its requirements, then my commands are binding. And you must obey them and you must teach others to do so. All of my commands, he says, are important and you cannot disregard or downplay any of them. And whether you do this will determine whether you enter the kingdom and will also determine your rank within it. Verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yikes. (laughs) Really, I'm supposed to keep up with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? They had calculated that there were 613 commandments in the law. 248 requirements, 365 prohibitions. They were, as we've seen, meticulous in ferreting out the details of the law, making rules designed to help keep them. So how can any ordinary Christian surpass the rule-keeping of those guys? Well, friends, the difference is not in quantity, 
but in quality. That is, it's not that we keep 240 commands and the average Pharisee kept 230, so we win. It's that our obedience, unlike theirs, is not external only, but it goes to the heart. And that's why I say in your outline, we revere Jesus' word by obeying him deeply. We obey him deeply. The Pharisees were content with external and formal obedience, a rigid conformity to the letter of the law. But God is interested not only in outward conformity because we must, but inward and outward because we love. Famously in 1 Samuel 16, God said, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The prophets had predicted that the new covenant that Jesus would the Messiah would inaugurate, would result in changed hearts that are motivated to carry out God's requirements. So the prophet Jeremiah says, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Through the prophet Ezekiel, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Friends, Do we restrict God's commands? And do we expand God's permissions? Oh, my goodness. If I had a dollar for every time I had a professing Christian say to me, where does it say I can't? Fill in the blank. Where in the Bible does it say I can't? And the way we're seeking to pursue righteousness is on technicalities. Where does God say, I can't do this thing that I want to do? Or, I used to lead teenagers many years ago in a land far away. Those poor teenagers... And I can't tell you how many times I heard teenagers say, what's wrong with it? Not what's right with it. What's wrong with it? Do you all know that the last verse of Romans chapter 14, Romans 14 and verse 23 says this, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The Bible Knowledge Commentary uh, interprets that simply this way. When in doubt, don't. Whatsoever is not of faith, in other words, that you are not sure is right, you don't do. And yet we say stuff like, where does it say I can't and what's wrong with it? And God, Jesus, does not give us license to restrict his commands. Do you understand, friends, that that's not the way the Bible's written? That's not the way God has given us His revelation? God does not say in the Bible anywhere, Thou shalt not snort cocaine. Where does it say in the Bible, I can't snort cocaine? Where does it say in the Bible, I can't smoke marijuana? Where does it say in the Bible, I can't smoke? Go down the list. The Bible's not written that way. 
The Bible is written, in fact, two-thirds of it is written in what we call narrative. It is stories about God dealing with people. So in those stories, you learn about God and you learn about people. And then you make application to today. And it gives us examples in the lives of people and example commands. But God never intended that he would have a command for every prohibition that he desires his people to follow. How do I know this? In Galatians chapter 5, it says this, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, do you all see in all caps, and the like, and stuff like this, Why is it not okay for you to engage in addictive substances? Well, how about this? One of the fruits of the Spirit is said to be self-control. Which means nothing else, no one else, and no thing else is to control you. But the Spirit of God. What does the Bible teach then, friends, about who you are? And whose you are. And that ought to dictate then the things that you allow yourself to do and not to do. Under whose control am I to be? If I'm addicted to something, I need to get off. And let me say this, before you ever get addicted to something, just don't take it. Don't drink it. Don't smoke it. Don't do it. Paul had to deal with this when he wrote to the church at Corinth twice in his first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 6 and then again in chapter 10, he says the same thing. I have the right to do anything. Now notice that's in quotation marks. And then the NIV helpfully says, you say. The Corinthians said, I have the right to do anything. I'm free in Jesus. I've been saved. He's covered all my sins by his blood. Thank you, Jesus. Let's party. I have the right to do anything you say. Paul says not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, again in quotes, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. And there he's summarizing a three-chapter discussion, chapters 8, 9, and 10, regarding whether or not a Christian should eat meat that's been offered previously in sacrifice to an idol. And if you read those three chapters, he says... He says, it's just meat. Idols are really not real. So all things being equal, you could eat it. But all things are not equal, and here's why. It may adversely affect somebody else. And because you love other people, you restrict your freedom on their behalf. And so we obey him. We obey Jesus' word. Lastly, I say in your outline, fully. We obey him fully then. So where in the Bible does it say I can't? Or we might say, but doesn't the Bible say I can? And Allah, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, sure, there are lots of things you have permission to do that you can do. But then there are also other people that you need to take into consideration more important than yourself. 
And in the midst of that discussion, right in chapter 9, in the middle of those three chapters discussing that, Paul, who wrote it, says this. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. He gives examples in his own life of stuff he can do, but that he voluntarily chose not to do for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. He says later in that chapter, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. You say, yikes, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Because I thought Christianity was free and easy and grace and I don't have to worry about anybody else. It's me and Jesus in the garden alone. And who cares about the rest of you? I'm not my brother's keeper, we think. And God says, you are your brother's keeper. And you are not an island. And the things you choose to do are not a matter of where does it say I can or I cannot, but a matter of who I am and who you are and under whose control you are to be and the effect of the things that you choose to do has on others. And friends, you don't get into the kingdom unless you obey Jesus. And you don't obey Jesus unless you're born again. Only people who are born again want to obey Jesus. And so we're going to conclude with how you can be born again. And then we're going to bow together. For us to confess our sin and ask our God to help us to live in a way that magnifies Jesus. I have in your take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, Christians follow Jesus by completely following God's Word. Completely. Now, how are you born again? Realize you're a sinner. And recognize that God takes sin so seriously that God Himself came to earth to do what you could not do. He paid the penalty by His death on the cross. Repent of your sin. God, I give my life to you. Repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I'm going to go your way and no longer my way. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. You'll have opportunity from your heart to God in your own words to say something like what's on the screen. Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner and you're the Savior for my sin. I ask you to take away the penalty for all of my sin because of what you did on the cross. And I want to learn of you, and I want to follow you. And you do that sincerely from your heart to God, believing who Jesus is and what he did. And the Bible tells us you're a changed person. He begins that change in you, and it becomes outward through you. For those of us who have come to God through Jesus, perhaps you're convicted of your narrow approach to God's word. What's wrong with it? Why can't I? Only looking at those things that God has specifically prohibited, you refrain from those. He specifically said you must do, you do those, and no more. And Jesus says, uh-uh, no such thing. You belong to me completely. And you take every breath and every word and every action in conformity to my righteous standard. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for this sacred time. And we thank you for the conviction of your word and of your Holy Spirit teaching us that Christians live better than Pharisees. 
that Christians live better and beyond the teachers of the law. That Christian righteousness is to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Oh, Lord, help us to be convicted of our Pharisaical, narrow adherence to what you say in precept only and ignoring the principles and the narratives of your word that are designed to teach us who you are and who we are and how we are to behave. Oh, Lord God, help us to love you supremely. And as Jesus said, the second great command is like it, love our neighbor as ourselves, loving you and loving others. And then in each situation of our lives, not asking what I can get away with, not asking what's wrong with it, asking what will demonstrate the character of our God in relationship to his creatures, particularly our brothers and sisters. Oh God, help us to be a church that does this. And as a result, shines the light of Christ, both in this fellowship and into this community. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.